0: Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of religions regimes and refugees and and a multicultural mess and secular scam. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your presence. I hope you had a great day. It is the weekend my friends and we are going to talk about something positive like I promised. We had three heavy uh, podcast um, the last three days. I think it was Well, one, two, three, for the whole week, we had really heavy podcasts. So this time, today, we're going to do something positive. Like I said, we have to replace the negative with some positive knowledge, knowledge about our heritage, um, our our history. Um, And today, we're going to talk about the secret of work or karma yoga. The secret of work comes from the works of Swami Vivekananda. And um, after that, we're going to talk about the beautiful work that was done at um, the panel of navagrahas above the doorframe of the Kalinga temples. Uh, I, I promised that to you yesterday, um, and and uh, we will take a look at it today. So let's start quickly because uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, before I do that, don't forget to. Uh, to spare some quick moments to listen to my channel, uh Sorry, from india it's on hubhopper.com. And um, I will be happy to have you on that channel. It talks about only Christian issues and, uh, and all the fault lines of Christianity. So on that note, we will start with the karma yoga or the secret work from the works of Swami Vivekananda. So, chapter three, the secret of work, helping others physically by removing their physical needs is indeed great. But the help is great as the need is greater, and according as the help is far-reaching, if a man wants, if a man's wants can be removed for an hour, it is helping him indeed. If he, if his wants can be removed for a year, it would help him, it'll be more help to him. But if his wants can be removed forever, it will surely be the greatest help that can be given to him. Spiritual knowledge is the only thing that can destroy our miseries forever. And any other knowledge satisfies wants only for a time. It is only with the knowledge of the spirit that the faculty of want is annihilated forever. So helping man spiritually is the highest help that can be given to him. He who gives man spiritual knowledge is the greatest benefactor of mankind. And as such, we will always find that those were the most powerful of men who helped man in his spiritual needs. Because spirituality is the true basis Of our activities in life. The spiritually strong and sound man will be strong in every other respect if he so wishes. Until there is a spiritual strength in a man every physical need cannot be well satisfied. Next to the spiritual comes the intellectual help. The gift of knowledge is a far higher gift than that of food and clothes. It is even higher than giving life to man. But the real life of man consists of knowledge. Ignorance is that. Knowledge is life. Life is of very little value if it is a life in the dark. Groping through the ignorance and misery, next in order comes, of course, helping a man physically. Therefore, in considering the questions of helping others, we must always strive not to commit the mistake of thinking that physical help is the only help that can be given. It is not only the last but the least because it cannot bring about permanent satisfaction. The misery that I feel when I'm hungry is satisfied by eating. But hunger returns. My misery can ease only when I'm satisfied beyond all want. Then hunger will not make me miserable. No distress, no sorrow will be able to move me. So that help which tends to make us strong spiritually is the highest. Next it comes from intellectual help and after that, physical help. The miseries of the world cannot be cured by physical help only. Until man's nature changes, these physical needs will always arise, and miseries will be felt. No amount of physical help will cure them completely. The only solution of this problem is to make mankind pure. Ignorance is the mother of all evil, and all the misery we see let men have light. Let them be pure, spiritually strong and educated. Then alone will misery cease in the world not before. We may convert every house in the country into charity asylum. We may fill the land with hospitals, but the misery of man will still continue to exist until man's character changes. We read in the Bhagavad Gita again and again that we must all work incessantly. All work is by nature composed of good and evil. Uh, We cannot do any work which will not do some good somewhere. There cannot be any work which will not cause harm somewhere else. Every work must necessarily be a mixture of good and evil, yet we are commanded to work incessantly. Good and evil will both have their results, will produce karma. Good action will entail upon us good effect, bad action, bad effect. But good and bad are both bondages of the soul. The, the solution reached in the Gita is is in regard to this bondage. Producing nature of work is that we, if we do not attach ourselves to the work we do, it will not be a binding effect on our soul. We shall try to understand this, uh, what is meant by non-attachment to work. There is one central idea in the Gita. Work incessantly, but be not attached to it. Samskara can be translated very nearly as inherent tendency. Until the smile of of a lake for the mind, every ripple, every wave that rises in the mind, when it subsides, does not die out entirely, but leaves a mark and a future possibility of the wave coming out again. This mark with the possibility of the wave reappearing is what is called samskara. Every work uh, we do, every movement of our body, every thought we think, leaves such an impression on the mind stuff. Even which, when such impressions are not obvious to the surface, they are sufficiently strong to work beneath the surface, um, subconsciously. But we are at every moment But we are every moment, sorry, what we are every moment is determined by the sum total of the impressions on the mind. Um, What I am just at this moment is the effect of the sum total of all the impressions of my past life. That means when when we talk about the packets of data that are embedded in your DNA. This is really what it means by character. Each man's character is determined by the sum total of all impressions. If good impressions prevail, the character becomes good. If bad impressions prevail, um, it's bad. If a man consciously hear, hears bad words, thinks bad thoughts, does bad actions, his mind will be full of bad impressions and will influence his thought and work without his conscious to the fact. In fact, these impressions are always working, and their resultant must be evil. And that man will be a bad man, he cannot help it. The sum total of all these impressions and will will create the strong motive of power for doing bad actions. We will be like a machine in the hands of his impressions, and they will force him to do evil. Similarly, if a man thinks good thoughts and good works, the sum total of these impressions will be good. In a similar manner, will force him to do good in spite of himself. When a man has done so much good work and taught so many good thoughts, that there is an irresistible tendency in him to do good in spite of himself. And even if he wishes to do evil, his mind, as the sum total of his tendencies, will not allow him to do so. The tendencies will turn him back. It is completely under the influence of good ten- tendencies. When such is the case, the man's good character is said to be established. As that tortoise tucks his feet and head inside the shell, you may kill it and break it into pieces, and yet it will not come out. Even so, the character of man who has control over his motives and organs is unchangeably established. His control, he controls his own inner forces, and nothing can draw them out of his will. By the continuous reflex of good thought, Good impressions, moving over the surface of the mind. The tendency for good becomes strong, and as a result, we feel able to control the indriyas, the sense organs, the nerve centers. Thus alone will character be established. Then alone, a, a man gets the truth. Such a man is safe for, forever. He cannot do any um, evil. You may place him in a company. There will be no danger for him. There is still higher state than having this tendency. And there is desire of liberation. You must remember the freedom of the soul is the goal of all yogas. And each one equally leads to the same result. By the work alone, men may get to where Buddha uh, has largely, got largely by meditation or Christ, by prayer. Buddha was working jnani. Christ was a Bhakta. But the same goal was reached by both of them. The difficulty is here. Liberation means entire freedom. Freedom from the bondage of good as well as from the bondage of evil. The gold chain is as much a chain as an iron iron one. There is a thorn in, in, in my finger and I use another to take the first one out. And when I have taken it out, I throw both of them aside. I have no necessity for keeping the second thorn, because both are thorns after all. So the bad tendencies are to be counteracted by good ones, and the bad impressions on the mind should be removed by the fresh waves of good ones. Until all of this evil disappears, or is subdued and held in control in a corner of the mind, but after that, um, the good tendencies have to be conquered. Thus the attached becomes unattached. Work let not the action of the thought produce a deep impression on the mind. Let the ripples come and go. Let huge actions proceed from muscles and the brain. But let them not any deep impression on the soul. How can this be done? We see the impression of any action to which we attach ourselves remain. I may meet hundreds of persons during the day, and among them meet also one whom I love when and when I retire at night I may try to think of the faces I saw but only that face becomes more the mine the face which I met perhaps only for one minute for which I loved all the others have vanished the attachment to this particular person caused deeper impression of my mind than all other faces first Physiologically, the impressions have all been the same. Every one of the faces that I saw pictured itself on the retina, and the brain took pictures in, and yet there was no similarity uh, of the effect upon the mind. Most of the faces, perhaps, were the entirely new ones, about which I had never thought before, but that one face of which I got only one glimpse found associations inside. Perhaps I had pictured him in my mind for years, knew hundreds of things about him, and this one new vision of him awakened hundreds of sleeping memories in my mind, and this one impression, having been repeated perhaps a hundred times more than those of the different faces together, will produce the same great effect on my mind. Therefore, be unattached. Uh, let things work. Let bra- let the brain centers work. Work incessantly. But let not a ripple conquer the mind. Work as if you were a stranger in the land. a sej- is uh, On a sejourn, on a journey. Work incessantly, but do not bind yourself. Bondage is terrible. The world is not our habitation. It is only one of many stages... To which we are passing. Remember the great saying of the Sankhya: the whole of nature is for the soul, for the soul, not the soul for nature. The very reason our nature's existence is for the education of the soul, it has no other meaning. It is there because of the soul must have knowledge and to knowledge free itself. If we remember this always, we shall never be attached to nature. We shall know that nature is a book in which we are to read and when we have gained the required knowledge, the book is of no value to us. Instead of that, however, we are identifying ourselves with nature. We are thinking of the soul is for nature and the spirit is for flesh. As the common saying has it, we think that man lives to eat and not eats to live. Um, We are continuously making this mistake. We are regarding nature as ourselves and becoming attached to it. And soon as this attachment comes there is deep impression on the soul, which binds us down and makes us work not for the freedom but for slaves. The whole gist of this teaching is that you should work like a master and not a slave. Work incessantly, but do not do slaves work. Do not see how everybody works. Nobody can altogether be at rest. 99% of mankind works like slaves, and the result is misery. It is all selfish work. Work for freedom. Work through love. The word love is very difficult to understand. Love never comes from this until there is freedom. There is no true love possible in the slave. If you buy a slave and tie him down in chains and make him work for you, he will work like drudge. But there will be no love in him. So when we ourselves work for these things the wo- of the world as slaves, there can be no love in us, and the work and our work is not true work. It is true a work done for relatives and friends, and is true, and is true a work done for our slaves. Selfish work is slaves' work, and here is a test. Every act of love brings happiness. There is no act of love which does not bring peace and blessedness as his reaction. Real existence, real knowledge, and real love are eternally connected with one another. The tree is one. Where one of them is, the other must also be. There are three aspects of one without a second. The existence, knowledge, and bliss. When that existence becomes relative, we see it as the world. The knowledge becomes in it in its turn modified into the knowledge of things, uh, of the world, and that bliss forms the foundation of all true love uh, known to the heart of man. Therefore, true love can never react as the cause of pain, either to the lover or to the beloved. Suppose a man loves a woman. He wishes to have her all himself and feels extremely jealous about her movement. He wants her to sit near him, to stand near him, and to eat and move to his at his bidding. He is a slave to her, uh, her. He is a slave to her and wishes to have her as his slave. That is not love. It is a kind of morbid affection of the slave, insinuating itself as love. It cannot be love because it is painful. If she does not do what he wants, it brings him pain. Um, with love, there is no pain reaction. Love only brings reaction of bliss. If it does not, it is not love. It is mistaking someone else for love. When you have succeeded in your, in loving your husband, your wife, um, your children, and the whole world, the universe, in such a manner that there is no reaction of pain or jealousy, no selfish feeling, uh, then you are in the state unattached of being of you are in a fit state to be unattached Krishna says look at me Arjuna if I stop from work for one moment the whole universe will die I have nothing to gain from work I am of the one Lord but why do I work because I love the world Uh, the divine is unattached because he loves God is unattached because he loves the real love makes us unattached when there is attachment, the clinging to things of the world, you must know that this is all physical attraction because the sets of particular matter sometimes that attract two bodies nearer and nearer all the time. And if they, they cannot go near another, it produces pain, but where there's real love, it does not rest on physical attachment at all. Such lovers may be found thousands of miles away from one another but their love still will be all the same. It does not die. It will never produce any painful reaction. To attain the unattachment is almost life work, but as soon as we have reached this point, we have attained the goal of love and becomes free. Bondage of nature falls from us. We see nature as he is. She forges no more chains for us. We stand entirely free and take not the results of work into consideration. Who then cares what the results may be do you ask anything from your children in return for what you have given him it is your duty to work for them and there the matter ends if whatever you do for a particular person a city or a state assume the same attitude towards it as you have towards your children expect nothing in return if you have invariably take the position of a giver in which everything given to you is a free offering in the world without any thought of return then you will work then your work will bring no attachment attachment comes only when we expect a return so basically i'm going to explain this to you invest in the action not in the fruit of the action very important put your efforts in the action whatever action you are doing make sure it's done Uh, On a positive note, to make sure it's done uh, to balance the status quo, to have peace, to improve the status quo, to help someone else. Don't expect anything in return. And working like slaves slaves results in selfishness, attachment. Working as a master of our own mind gives rise to the bliss of non-attachment. We often talk of right and justice, but we find that in the world, right and justice are mere baby talk. There are two things which guide the conduct of men, the might and mercy. The exact exercise of might is invariably the exercise of selfishness. All men and women try to make most of whatever power or advantage they have. Mercy is heaven itself to be good. We have all to be merciful. Even justice and right should stand on mercy. All though thought of obtaining um, we real return for work we do hinders our spiritual process nay in the end it brings misery therefore another way of which this idea of mercy and selfless charity can be put into practice that is by looking upon work as worship in case we bring in a personal God we here we give up all the fruits of our labor unto the Lord and worshiping him thus we have no right to expect anything from a man Kind of work we do, the Lord Himself works incessantly and is ever without attachment, just as water cannot wet the lotus leaf. So work cannot be bind the unselfish man by giving rise to attachments of results. The selfless, the selfless and unattached man may live in the very heart of a crowded and sinful city, but he will not be attached to sin. This idea of self-sacrifice. Is illustrated in the following story. After the battle of Kurukshetra, the five Pandava brothers performed the great sacrifice and made large gifts to the poor. All people expressed amazement at the greatness and richness of the sacrifice and said that such a sacrifice the world had never seen before. But after the ceremony there came a little mongoose, half of whose body was golden and the other half was brown, and he began to roll on the floor of the sacrificial hall. He said, to those around you are all liars this is not a sacrifice what they exclaimed you say this is no sacrifice do you know how much money and jewels are poured out to the poor and everyone became rich and happy this was the most wonderful sacrifice any man ever performed and the mongoose said there was once a little village and in there lived dwelt a poor brahman with his wife son and son's wife they were very poor and lived um they were very poor and lived on small gifts made to them by, for preaching and teaching. They came in a land of three, three years famine, then came in the land a three-year famine, and the poor Brahmin suffered most than ever. At last, when the family had starved for days, the father brought home one morning a little barley flour, which he had been fortunate to obtain, and he divided it into four parts, each one for a member of the family. They prepared it for the meal, and just as they were about to eat, there was a knock on the door. The father opened it, and there was stood a guest. Now in India, a guest is a sacred person. He is a god for the time being and must be treated as such. So the poor Brahmin come in, come in and said, Come in, sir, you're welcome. He set the before the guest his own portion of food, which the guest quickly ate and said, Oh, sir, you have killed me. I have been starving for ten days. And this is a little bit has just increased my hunger. Then the wife said to her husband, Give him my share. But the husband said no. The wife, however, insisted, saying, He is a poor man, and it is our duty as householders to see that he is fed. And it is my duty as a wife to give him my portion, seeing that you have no more to offer. Then she gave her her share to the guest, which he ate, and he was still burning of hunger. So the son said the same thing. Um the night uh the guest ate that but remains unsatisfied, so the son's wife gave the potion. That was sufficient, and then the guest departed blessing them. That night those four people died of starvation. A few granules of that flower had fallen to the floor, and when I rolled my body on them half of it became golden, as you see. Since then I've been travelling all over the world hoping to find another sacrifice like them. But nowhere have I found one. Nowhere else in the w- has the other half of my body turned to gold. This is why I say this is no sacrifice. The idea of charity is going out of India. Great men are becoming fewer and fewer. When I was first learning English, I read an English storybook in which there was a story about a dutiful boy who had gone out to work and had given some money to his old mother. And which is praised in three, four, three or four pages. What was that? No Hindu boy can ever understand the moral of that story. Now I understand it when I hear the Western idea every man for himself. And some men take everything for themselves fathers, mothers, wives, and children go to the wall. That should never, nowhere be the ideal for the householder. Now you see what karma yoga means. Even at the point of death, to help anyone without asking questions, we cheated million times, millions of times, and never ask a question, and never think of what you're doing, never want of your gifts to the poor, and expect their gratitude, but rather be grateful to them for giving you an occasion of practising charity to them. Thus, in in its plain, there are. Thus, it is plain that to be an idle householder, it is more difficult a task than to be an ideal sunset. Uh, The true life of work is indeed as hard as, if not harder, the equally true life of renunciation. So basically, this is what I understand from it. We are currents and waves, okay? It's our currents that form the waves. Whatever you do to others, you give the key to others to do the same thing to you, okay? That's basically what it is. So the the currents will form, go cycle after cycle, cycle and the wave comes to the beach and goes back. And another current will form, the wave comes to the beach and goes back to the ocean. It's the same ocean that we're all going back into. So it's our currents that form the waves. It's not the waves that form the currents. So every time you do something, you don't don't do it for the fruit of the action, do it for the action. Um, Whatever you do, You will get back the same thing and the same quantity, and twice over with more force, Um, because um, every time you do something, you give the key to someone to do the same thing to you, and that, my dear friend, is all of this in a nutshell. So, whatever you do, positive, negative, remember we are positive, negative, and magnetic. There's no difference in that. We are made out of. We are a duality electromagnetic field and the magnetic is made out of a a positive negative uh a positive and negative and obviously the magnetic field so negative positive and magnetic and you have the um the base of human of, of the species of life everything in the in the universe is the same we know about uh what it is uh in the ancient uh texts of uh uh, of of India. Uh, it is called in Sanskrit, Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. Okay, so that is basically what it is. Um, I will read that in another chapter, and I will now go to some work that has been done by our ancestors. Beautiful, beautiful work um, depicting the cosmos, um, and I will, as I've promised you, doorframe, the Navagrahas above the doorframe of the Kalinga Temple. The Navagraha means nine planets. It's a monolithic slab originally placed over the eastern gateway of the audience hall of the Sun Temple at Konak Odisha, is now being placed, displayed in a separate shed constructed for this purpose by ASI in the year 1956. This monolithic slab measures 6 meters in length, 2 meters in width, and 1.2 meters in height. This has been made into 9 different inches representing the figures of the Navagrahas, which were richly on, on, ornamented. There were similar two other slabs originally placed over the two gateways of the Sun Temple at Konark. most probably those who, other monolithic Navagraha panels were cut in pieces and taken away by the Britishers, which are now being displayed in the British Museum. All the grahas are seated across a cross-legged on a lotus pedestal, carrying a water pot in the left hand and in the right, a rosary, a Rudraksh mala. Um, watch the Yagna pabita, the sacred thread, the kundala, yearing in the years, um, the anklet on the right leg, the Rahu and Ketu don't have, which they don't have. Uh, there are some pictures on the site which I will give you so shortly, and we will go into um, we will go into um, detail of it. Now this comes from the site lunasectacy.com. I repeat, lunasectacy.com. Absolutely amazing site. It is on my Facebook page, but you could go to it yourself. It is absolutely gorgeous. You can take a look at it on Facebook. Luna sectacy. L-U-N-A-R-S-E-C uh, S T A C Y. Um, so um, the most venerated Navagraha idols of the Sun Temple Conak. Some d- d- displaced in the British Museum. With the initiation of the su- Sura Puja, the Sun Puja, in medieval o- Odisha, the work of the Navagrahas likewise acquired momentum. It was potentially in light of the fact that the Surya being one of the Grahas, that means the sun being one of the Grahas, um, Grahas meaning um, yeah, the planet um, um, according to Vedic conviction, which controls the destiny of the individual because the sun is the center of the cosmos and controls everything. Uh, the coordinated worship of the Navagrahas additionally got due acknowledgement and veneration among the masses. The practice of Navagraha worship had hampered, was hampered with the decline of the sun um, sect, or the, uh, you know, denomination particularly when the Sun Temple at Konak was deserted. However, the Graha, that means the planets, the Puja Graha Stotra, chanting and reciting of hymns, are still in practice by individuals to appease all the planets before the initiation of the work. People are are wearing rings, having different stones for the appeasement of different Grahas. Over the uh, most recent decades, It has been seen that few temples devoted to Sani have come up. Most likely it owes its inheritance from Navagraha worship, which were widely practiced in the bygone eras. In Bengal and Bihar, nine planets are portrayed in standing stands, in certain spots with the Vahanas and in in a few different spots without the Vahanas. Yet in Odisha, every one of the Grahas, that is the planets, is seen sitting cross-legged on a lotus platform. The Navagraha panel has been found above the entrance doorways since the evolution of the Kalingan temple architecture. With the passage of time, this portrayal of the Graha panel turned into an enriching workmanship theme in the Kalingan temple architecture. We find graha panels in the lintel slabs or even the earliest surviving and the best preserved specimen temples of the pre-Soma Vamsi period like Lakshameshwar, Shatruganeshwar, Parupalmeshwar temple. But astonishingly, astonishingly we find out 8 grahas, that is, K2, uh, we find only 8 grahas. K2, one of the planets, is seen missing. Ketu is the ninth planet found a spot on the archetype of temples from the 10th century onwards. The pers- uh, pers- pervasiveness uh, just bear with me here, won't be very long. the pervasiveness and fame of ashkotri framework in the somavasi period was a conceivable motivation not to remember ketu for the planetary framework uh, yet yet all things considered the vimoshri fra- framework that's the astrological computation of 120 years recommended by vada uh, hamira was brought into kalinga by those times of the somavasi rulers during accordingly joining Ketu among the planets. As per Hindu conviction, the position of architectural lintel containing the grahas or the planets was viewed from the propitious guaranteeing a long life for the temple and managing the adverse impacts of the evil planets. As per the Shastras, all work should start with the summon of of the planets, otherwise individuals can't achieve their desires. The nine planets are Suya, Soma, Mangal, Buddha, Briaspati, Sukra, Sani, Rahu, Ketu. The earliest slab of the Odisha, uh, earliest Astagraha slab of Odisha belongs to the 7th century AD, originally attached to the uh, Lakshmaneshwar temple at Bhubaneshwar. Perhaps the Jain monks were not accepting the ex- existence of nine grahas until 11th century AD because 10th and 11th numbers um, rock numbers of rock-cut caves uh, of Kadingari near Bhumadeswar have been spotted having Astagraha lintel slabs in the front. As everybody knows, Kalingan temple architecture reached its zenith in the Sun Temple of, at Konaat. It was being found that the sculptures of Navagraha slab the Sun Temple is lavishly ornamented om- and can be judged as the best available specimen of sort. Um so you have over here on the site uh Luna Sectasy, you have Rahu holding uh in each a crescent displayed at the British Museum, Ketu holding a bowl of flame, um Sunny, that's Saturn, Shukra, that's Venus, Potbellied Brihaspati, that's Jupiter, uh Buddha, that is Mercury, Mangal, Mars, Chandra, the moon, and all displayed at the British Museum. Here, an inquiry ring at the bell of e- there's an inquiry rings here an inquiry rings a bell at each onlooker. So the Namagrahas nine planets a monolithic slab originally placed over the eastern gateway of the Sun Temple at um, Konak, Odisha, is now displayed in separate sheds. Constructed for this purpose by the ASI in the year fift- 1956, the monolithic slab measures 6 meters in length, 2 meters width, 1.2 in height. They may be made, they has been made into nine different niches representing the plant, the figures of the Navagrahas, which were lavishly ormen, or, ormented, ornamented. There were similar two other slabs originally placed over the other two gateways of the Sun Temple of the Konao. Most probably, these two other monolithic Navagraha panels were cut into pieces and taken away, which have now been displayed at the British Museum. Um, All grahas are seated with folded legs on lotus pedestal, carrying a katmandu in in the left hand, that's a kamandu dalu, sorry, a water pot in the left hand and a right a rosary. Um the Pabita, the sacred thread, and the kundala, the earrings, and anklets in the right leg. Um, so a different time, uh, a different time effort uh, have been made to shift the Navagraha slabs to other places, but attempts have failed. The Asiatic Society of Bengal tries several times to shift it to the Indian Museum at in Kolkata during 1859 and 1839, but in vain, to uh Facilitate its transportation, the slab was sliced longitudinally into two halves in the year 1893. The shifting couldn't be possible because of the sandy terrain all around the heaviness of the sculpture, even after cutting. It remained in its, its condition for more than six decades prior to be getting installed in separate sheds near the Sun Temple of the ASI. This is the story behind our most venerated Navagraha idols of Connacht. Uh, so you can go on to that site, lunaecstasy.com. Fantastic absolute site, my dear friends. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast. So this was a positive podcast to bring to you the knowledge of our ancestors. I hope you liked it. Please share it with your friends, your family, your f- uh, social media sites um have that discussion discuss it with your friends with your neighbors and externalize right uh, right is very important to externalize and slowly and surely we will heal and we will rise to better tomorrow so thank you very much for your time i hope you have a great day